please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning. Looking at the letter of Paul to the Galatians, we'll be looking at chapter 1 and verses 18 to 24. So Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 to 24. Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 to 24. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, it's, it's not uncommon to have conversations with other believers and uh, discuss how they came to saving faith. That's a fairly common topic for believers to discuss, isn't it? As they get together. What is your your testimony? What is your uh, conversion story? And there are some people uh, who know the exact moment, right, in which they were were saved. They can tell you the, you know, the date, the time, the the place, everything. And usually, because something like what what Paul experienced happened, right? So some event happened that makes them remember. The moment that they said, yes, I, I trust in Christ. I, I believe it was that moment based on what happened here. That, is that, that moment I knew I was saved. I think for others, though, they can maybe tell you the time period in which they were saved. Uh, you know, it was the summer of 1992. Uh, but as believers discuss those things, as they discuss their their, their testimony, what oftentimes also happens, is that they include what they were prior to the conversion, so that we might kind of see that the change that has occurred post-conversion. Right? And that's done in order that, that they might highlight right, the power of God in salvation. Right? This is what I used to be apart from Christ, and this is who I am now as Christ is, has grabbed a hold of me. And again, it highlights right the, the, the power of God in salvation because salvation, brothers and sisters, is not a, a natural phenomenon, is it? No, salvation is a, is a spiritual phenomenon. It's a, it's a supernatural phenomenon that occurs. And so if it's a supernatural work that is done in you, it ought to be something that's visible to others, though, as well, shouldn't it be? Right, yes, when God converts the sinner... You can't see what he's doing inside because it's an internal work, right? But the effects of what he has done inside you should be seen by others. It ought to be able to be seen by, by the eyes of other people. Think about it in this way. Say someone needed to have a back surgery. Uh, maybe because of their bad back, they couldn't bend down, pick up a package. Um, they weren't able to, to walk properly, right? Because their, their back hurts so much. Maybe they're hunched over. And so they go to see a doctor.
who takes care of the, the physical body. And after they maybe fuse some discs, discs together and send him back home over time, right, he's able to, to now walk upright and he can, he can bend down and he can lift boxes. Right? Although you're not able to see the work that the doctor did inside of that person, are you not able to see the effects that it had? You can, can't you? And the same is true with our, with our conversion then as well. Right? As God, who is the spiritual physician, right? As He performs surgery on the souls of the saints, you ought to be able to see the effects of the work that He did inside of you outside as well, shouldn't you? I think we all can, can nod in agreement to that. Uh, scripture is very clear, isn't it? Uh, concerning uh, what uh, saving faith ought to produce in the believer. Right? It's very clear on this, that, that there ought to be effects that can be seen in light of the transformation that one has had. Uh, think about this in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18. Uh, Jesus says that uh, what comes uh, that out of the mouth uh, comes whatever proceeds from the heart, right? Uh, and he says, whatever comes out then from the mouth uh, that proceeds from the heart, that's what defiles somebody, right? And so we have to ask the question, okay, well, well then what does it mean for the one who has had a changed heart, right? who has a, a new heart, who doesn't have that, that same heart? Well, ultimately, what ought to happen? Right? Because God promises a new heart to us, doesn't he? Right? In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What ought to mean then, well, if you can tell our wickedness by things that we said because of the wicked heart that we had, that, that now when God promises to give us a new heart, you ought to be able to tell that we have a new heart based on the things that we now speak and say. Right? So it's to say that, that a renewed heart, right, the internal work of God ought to bring about a new language in God's people. Right? It ought to bring about a new language. Right? At one time, we used to maybe curse God, blaspheme His name. Now, with our new heart, what do we do? We, we bless the name of our Lord. Perhaps uh, prior to conversion, we were people who, who, who bashed maybe our neighbors a lot. Right? Spoke about them in a very negative light. Right now that that we have this renewed heart, we no longer longer desire to slander our neighbor, right? But to uphold our neighbor's good name, to speak well of our neighbors. Uh, perhaps also in the past, prior to our conversion, we we only spoke about worldly things, right? But now with this new heart, what comes out of our mouth and from our tongues are are spiritual things, right? We we desire to talk about the things of God, and so there is this change that occurs within us but one that at least can be heard by other people's ears. right? They can, they can hear the difference in us through how we now use our tongues based on the heart that we have. Right? But no, not only is the, the language of the Christian ought to be recognizably different by the hearers, but also our manner of living. right? Shouldn't that be different as well? And shouldn't that be recognizable to, to those around us as well? Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. In verse 24, And to put on your new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness 
and holiness. And so, what does Paul say here? That, that your salvation ought to have a profound effect upon you. That there was a manner of living that you once walked in the manner of the Gentiles, the unbelievers, right? But now you are to walk in a different manner, right? In a Christian manner. And so these things are, are two different ways of life. Isn't this what the letter of James is all about? Right, what does James ask there in chapter two? Can, can, can this faith save you? Right? A faith that, that just professes but doesn't do anything. Right? Or James is asking, or does true saving faith always work itself out in the lives of God's people? Right? Practically. And of course, we all know that, that true saving faith, right, never fails to, to produce, right, effects that God wants. Why is that? Well, because the God who, who gives you that saving faith does not fail to produce within you His intended effects. Right? Which is why He has, he has given you this faith. And one of the reasons that you might then go out into the world right, and live in a Christian manner. But we have to ask ourselves, well, how does He do that? How does He cause us to, to do these good works now? Right? Through the faith that He has given to us. Well, Jesus answers that in John chapter 15. In verse 5, Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So how does he cause that to happen in our lives? Through union with Christ. Right? Through union with Christ. Here Jesus expresses that, that closeness of union with him. And the communication of life and grace and fruitfulness, and support, and wisdom, and perseverance until the end, that all come through belonging and being in Jesus. Right? You know why we produce good works in our life if you have saving faith? It's because Jesus is the one who is inside of you, pumping you full of those things. That you might go out and exert yourself in them. And if that be true, brothers and sisters, then a, a Christian is not just someone who is known by their profession, but they're also known by the fruit they bear. Right? Why? Well, because God's work is perfect. Right? The, the grace He gives radically and totally transforms the sinner. And that's really what we see in Paul's autobiography here in the first chapter, don't we? Right? Last week we looked at Paul's pre-conversion life. We looked at the event of conversion. And now this week in our text, and, and even a little into chapter 2 next week, we're going to see Paul's life post-conversion, in light of that work that God has now performed upon Paul's heart. And Paul records this, this work that God performed upon his heart as an indication to all the saints that he is writing to in the churches of Galatia that what he preached to them ought to be believed. Right? It's a, it's a further indication to them. Believe what I am preaching to you because not only was my election of God Right? Not only was my effectual calling of God, not only was my conversion of God, but even my life as I live it now and everything that you're hearing that I'm doing is from God. Right? That's what he's trying to communicate here to the saints. And what was the cause of that, uh, of that living? Well, ultimately, brothers and sisters, it is the, it is the grace of faith. Right? It is the grace of faith that is the cause of Paul's living. In this sense, look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
and the, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so as we look now at Paul's uh, post-conversion autobiography here in verses 18 to 24, we see that, that Paul lives by faith in Christ. Right? That is what is causing Paul to, to go out and to do what he does. And so this, is be, this will be our first point in this morning. Uh, Paul now lives by faith in Christ. That's point number one. Paul now lives by faith in Christ. In verse 18, we read, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him fifteen days. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is, uh, what was Paul doing three years prior? What was going on during those, those three years? And for that answer, you really got to look back to the, the previous verses, verses uh, 16 and verse 17. There in verse 16, that uh, God was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Right? And so, so what was Paul doing for those, those three years prior to coming to Jerusalem? He was in Arabia and he was in Damascus. Right? He, was, he was preaching God's word there. Uh, there's a parallel text. Flip over with me to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, there's a, a parallel text to what Paul is describing here. Acts chapter 9, and we'll begin at verse 18. Acts chapter 9, verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Paul, excuse me, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus. Uh, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now here, verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. That's, that's where our text begins then here in verse 18. And so, we have to ask ourselves, what was Paul doing for those three years? Well, ultimately, he, he began in Damascus preaching the, preaching the gospel. Now, Acts doesn't tell us this, but, but Paul fills it in. He went to Arabia, right, next. And then he goes back again to, to Damascus to preach the gospel again. And so, we see that, that here in the letter to the Galatians, Paul is adding uh, more details, 
Now, in verse 18 then, look back at Acts 9. And we'll look at verses uh, 26 to 30 now, because this parallels our text today. Acts 9, 26 to 30 parallels Galatians 1, 18 to 24. Here we read this then. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, that passage parallels our passage. Now, you may ask yourself this. You may say, well, well, why does what uh, Luke described in the book of Acts seem different, though, than what Paul is describing in this letter to the Galatians? Uh, It seems like he's in Damascus, and then from Damascus he just goes straight to Jerusalem. It seems like it happens kind of in a short period of time, back to back almost. Uh, but we need to understand what, what uh, Luke is doing. He's, he's doing what's called a telescoping. Right? He's, he's telescoping. Which means you, you take uh, maybe uh, many events and you condense them into something smaller. Uh, the, the purpose of that would be to, to kind of rid all of the unnecessary details and to just, in brief summary, uh, state whatever point it is that you're trying to get across or whatever it is that you're trying to tell them. Uh, the, the gospel writers telescope a lot. That's why you can read uh, two of the same passages about something in the life of Jesus and one is different from the other. It's because oftentimes what they're doing is telescoping. Right? They're not giving every single detail. They're summarizing all the details as if they almost happen at one time or very close together while another gospel writer goes into more detail and tells you, uh, 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 kind of fills out the narrative more. Uh, but this is a good reason, though, why, why it's nice to have uh, more than one account of something that happens in Scripture, isn't it? Uh, because you learn more about what happened. Right? Here, Paul teaches us more, more of the details that occurred during uh, his early ministry. Now, when Luke is writing the book of Acts, maybe he doesn't need these details. And so he just kind of gives a, a quick account of, of Paul's early ministry. But, but Paul does need these details, doesn't he? Right? There's a reason for Paul to go into greater detail about his ministry. right? Why? Why does Paul need to add this? Well, he adds it because it helps his argument, doesn't it? Right? It helps Paul's argument. The Judaizers are trying to say that Paul's gospel came from man. right? That, that Paul's gospel maybe was something he got from the church in Jerusalem. And then now Paul's taking it and distorting it. But Paul's saying, no, that can't be the case. But it never happened. Because I didn't meet up with the apostles for three years. I didn't go to the church of Jerusalem for three years. Right? What I preach to you and why you ought to believe it is because it is the gospel that came to me directly from God to give to you. This is why then he adds in verses 19 and 20. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Here, he's making mention of time again, isn't he? First, it was three years. Now, it's 15 days. Why does he make mention of 15 days? 
Well, to say to them, I was with only two of the apostles for a very short amount of time. Certainly not long enough to learn everything that it is that I know about the Lord. And so he's, what he's ultimately saying is, is that the apostles or the church in Jerusalem weren't my teachers. And ultimately I was a, I was a student of Christ. Right? It was under Christ's ministry during those three years that I learned and that I was, I was brought along. And what did Paul do with what Christ taught him? Well, he believed, didn't he? Right? He believed and he, he trusted and he, he then lived by faith. This is something that we need to understand that's very important. When God draws the sinner to Christ, He makes the unwilling now willing, doesn't He? By changing the will of the sinner. Right? He makes the unwilling now willing. We need to understand that, that God does not save us against our will. Right? When He saved Paul, He didn't save him against Paul's will. Right? Paul wasn't kicking and dragging saying, no, I don't want to believe in you. Don't make me do this. Right? That, that's not how it works in salvation, is it? No, rather, what God does is He, he gives you a new will so that you do want God and you do believe in Christ and you do lay hold of the Gospel. It was uh, St. Augustine who said this, He that made you without you does not save you without you. This is an important point. I think a lot of times, as, even as Calvinists, we don't want to sound Arminian when we speak. And so we, we make it seem as if it's almost God who does the believing in us. But no, we need to understand that, that what God does is he, he changes your will and He enables you now to do the believing. Right? He enables you to now exercise faith in Him. So that we see that, that faith then still is all of grace, isn't it? Because apart from, from God drawing out the consent of the will in Paul, right? apart from God drawing out the consent of, of the will in you to trust in Jesus, you never would. And so we see that it's, it's all of grace. And it's only this belief in the object of the faith who is Christ that alone constitutes saving faith. There are many kinds of faith out there, aren't there? Ones that, that kind of pawn themselves off to be Christian, that, that look Christian in many ways, but we need to understand that, that, that the saving faith that, that Paul uh, is given and exemplifies in his life is not uh, what these other faiths are. Right? It, is, it is of another nature. It is of a different nature. And this is what I mean. I think maybe one of the, the popular ways uh, that, that we see going on is uh, that, that looks very close to, to, to true Christianity we would call maybe a mental belief. Right? So if we're looking at, at saving faith, what is true saving faith? What's something that looks really close to it? Mental belief in, Christ, in, in professing Christians. Okay? Um, I think those people that would have that mental belief would be those who are maybe raised in Christian homes. Uh, maybe went to Christian schools, uh, grew up in church their life. And so uh, today they would identify themselves as Christian even though they don't go to church, right? they don't live the, the, the Christian life. They would say, yes, I know Christ um, because I was taught of Him. I know the Gospel. I believe it to be true. And so 
that would be what we might consider mental belief, which I think uh, there are a lot of people in a lot of pews, right, who, who simply have, have mental belief. Uh, this, that's why uh, just a couple of years ago I was looking, there was a Pew Research poll that said 64% of Americans uh, identify themselves as Christian. Well, we know that that's certainly not the case, uh, especially over the last few years. Uh, the, the church attendance numbers have been going in the opposite direction, haven't they? And so what we need to understand is that, is that a saving knowledge or saving faith is not just knowing Christ and assenting to who he is or, or the gospel message. Right? That is not saving faith. This type of faith is not a, a living power inside of them that directs them Godward and heavenward and, and Christward. Right? Justifying faith is not easy believism. Right? We need to understand that. It is a living reliance upon Christ. Right? That is what saving faith is. It is a living reliance upon Christ. Yes, it is knowledge. Right? You need knowledge of Christ. You need knowledge of the Gospel. You need to assent to those things. But it's so much more than just that. It's so much more. It's a trust that, that finds its refuge with God in Christ. Right? Saving faith is a, is a confident trust in Christ. It is a, a sole reliance upon Christ. It is to treat Christ as the solid rock of our faith and to, and to live upon Christ and to set all of our hopes in Him. Right? That is what saving faith is. It's not only just knowledge and assent, but it's, it's a wholehearted trust right, in who Christ is. Which means that saving faith also is not sentimental feelings towards Jesus as well. Right? It's not sentimental feelings, but rather it's, it's grounded in something, isn't it? Right? The faith is grounded in what? It's grounded in truth, isn't it? Grounded in the truth of God's Word by which He reveals to us His Son. There are so many who think that I can divorce myself from the church. I can not even believe in the Bible. Uh, and yet, I can call myself maybe spiritual, but not religious. But we need to see, brothers and sisters, that that, that is, is not true faith either. Because Scripture tells us that for one to be saved, you need belief in the truth. And what is the truth? Scripture tells us the Word of God right, is truth. And so, we cannot divide faith from the Bible. It can't devolve into to just personal feelings. You cannot divide faith from revelation. But let us also see this. Those of us who, who do come to church and would consider ourselves religious, that also, though, that revelation is not something that, that just must be sealed in our minds. But that revelation is something that must also be sealed in our hearts. It must be sealed to our hearts because only then does that revelation move from just being theory to being something very real. Only then do you come to truly know Christ. Only then do you come to to truly trust in Christ as the Savior. Jonathan Edwards said this, that the light of Christ in the soul effectively transforms the person. He says it will turn the heart to God and to choose Him for the only portion. 
Right? To, to, to know Christ in this salvific way is to love Christ. It's to live in Christ. It's to rely on Christ. It's to, it's to rest in Christ as your all-sufficient Lord and Savior. And this is exactly then what I want us to see Paul's actions post-conversion demonstrate. Right? That, that Paul had this kind of saving faith. In the book of Acts, we're told that, that God chose uh, Paul to be his instrument to, to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. And as soon as Paul regains his sight, as we read about, what did Paul go and do? <laughs> he did the very thing he was commissioned to do, didn't he? Right? He didn't say to, to, to Christ, no, before I go and preach the gospel in Damascus, I, I have to first seek the approval of the other apostles. He didn't say, no, before I preach the gospel, I need to to have the approval of the church in Jerusalem. No, he went and did the very thing that Christ had called him to do. That's because Paul received saving faith, which not only caused Paul to, to know Christ, but to trust in every word that Christ spoke to him and then live by faith. Right, we see that here then that Paul looked to nobody else but Christ right, post-conversion. For his, his strength and his wisdom, do you know who he went to? He went to Christ. For all that he needed, he went to Christ. He trusted and relied upon no man but only Christ living in him, being transformed by the grace of Christ. Now we need to see, brothers and sisters, that right, what happened to Paul is not normative for all of us. In the sense that uh, God has given us men by which declare God's word to us uh, through which he blesses. Right? So Paul's case is not normative. Where Jesus himself speaks to Paul. Jesus himself uh, re- reveals to Paul this truth. Jesus himself teaches Paul. Okay, but, but what we do need to see is that what Paul experiences post-conversion ought to be true, though, of every single one of us. Paul's experience ought to be your experience and mine. Why? Well, because the same God who transformed Paul it's the same God who performs that same transforming work upon all of us. For everyone here who has that, that true saving faith in Christ, you know what it is then to, like Paul, uh, live in faith, don't you? Right? You know what it's like to, to look to Christ for, for strength and for wisdom in every situation because you know Jesus now lives in you and you have not just a head knowledge of Jesus, but you have an experiential Knowledge of Jesus right? uh, can also be called experimental knowledge. This was the language of the Puritans, which is to say that not only do you in your mind know of Jesus, but you have experienced Jesus in your life. Right? You have experienced Him. And it is this saving knowledge, brothers and sisters, that if you have experienced not only the head knowledge, but the experiential knowledge of Jesus, that nothing in this world compares to. Nothing in the world compares to it that only a true believer knows who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God. And this is what Paul's life is an example of then, isn't it? That's what Paul's life is an example of. That's what your lives ought to be examples of if you have experienced the the saving knowledge of Christ. We were once those born in sin, now raised to newness of life, to live by faith in Jesus. But what else is true of Paul's uh, post-conversion life? Not only does he 
He, he lived by faith. But here is our second point. Let's look at verses 21 and 22 together. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So, our second point is this. Paul walks in humble submission to God's Word. Paul walks in humble submission to God's Word. Now, what we read here about Paul's travels to Syria and Cilicia is... If you remember what we just read in Acts chapter 9, verse 30. Right? That's the parallel passage there. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to uh, Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Well, you say to yourself, where in there is uh, Cilicia and Syria? Well, this is, uh, we have to ask the question, where is Tarsus located? Cilicia. How do we know that? Well, Paul himself says it. In Acts chapter 21, verse 39, when Paul is arrested and brought before the the tribune, this is what he says, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. In Acts chapter 11, verse 25, we are told that, that Barnabas goes looking for Paul then in Tarsus or in Cilicia. And where does he then bring Paul? He brings him to Antioch. In Syria. And so we see here that, that what's going on here is, can be paralleled in the, in the book of, in the book of Acts. And so, uh, Paul is called to preach, right, by, by Christ. And when that message is revealed to Paul, uh, as he travels to these places, what does Paul do, right? He preaches. Right? As soon as the scales are removed and the will of God is revealed, right, he doesn't wait a day, a week, a month, or a year to humble himself and submit himself to, to the Word of God, but he does so right, immediately. He's told to preach, and he preaches. Right? He preaches in Damascus, Arabia, Damascus for three years. He goes and preaches in Jerusalem for 15 days. And then he goes to Cilicia, into, into Syria, and, and he continues doing the very work that God has called him to do. And so what we need to see is that true saving faith then manifests itself in the life of God's people in our obedience to Him. Right? In our obedience to the Word of God. That's what Paul's life demonstrates. It was Martin Luther who said of faith this, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. Right, hear that again when Martin Luther says of faith. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And we see that in the life of Paul, don't we? I mean, perhaps Paul was scared when, when Christ had told him of his plan for Paul, when he revealed his will to Paul, because we're told in the book of Acts that he was going to show Paul what he must suffer for the name of Christ. And so certainly it might be natural for, for Paul to be, to be fearful, isn't it? But what we need to see, brothers and sisters, is that, that true saving faith overcomes fear. Right? True saving faith overcomes fear. Right? It might struggle, but it resists all doubt. Right? I mean, Paul knows where he's going into. He knows the places that he's being sent to. He knows he's being sent oftentimes into, into lion dens of sorts. 
Right? He's being sent to people who, who know about his past life. Perhaps it would be a great embarrassment to Paul as people are, are talking behind his back as he's walking through and preaching, saying, why is he doing this now? Maybe questioning his motivation, saying, this was the one who was trying to, to kill Christians, now he claims to be one of them. Certainly maybe Paul is thinking to himself, well, Lord, wouldn't it be far better to send someone else who, who didn't live such a wretched life to do this? Maybe to, would, would that maybe not glorify your name more? But we need to see this, that, that true saving faith also denies our own wisdom, doesn't it? Right? It denies our own wisdom. It denies maybe what we think is good as we humble ourselves to the will of God and, and what He calls us to do and wherever He sends us off to, and whatever He tells us to believe, and whatever He tells us to do. Isn't this the, the example of, of uh, Abraham himself? Isn't this exactly what Abraham demonstrates in his own life? Think about uh, Genesis chapter 12. Right? God tells Abraham to, to leave his country for another land, and what does Abraham do? He goes. Right? Abraham goes. And so what Paul and Abraham show to us is that when the will of God is made known to you, that we must humbly submit to His Word. Right? That's what their lives demonstrate to us. Because if you're not obeying the will of God, brothers and sisters, what are you doing? What's the opposite of, obe- of obeying His will? You are disobeying the will of God. If you are not doing the will of God, you are doing the opposite. If you are not being conformed to the image of Christ through sanctification, what else is happening to you? You're being conformed to the image of sin. You're doing one, or you are doing the other. And so for the Christian, we might ask ourselves, well, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? Well, brothers and sisters, it's easy. It's the Word of God. Right? The Word of God is the will of God, which means that we don't need to, to sit in our homes and to look up to the sky. Right, waiting for God to drop something on our lap to tell us what to do. For He has already revealed it to us in His Word. He, he tells us what His will is. Right, His will is the law of God, isn't it? Doing the law of God. That law that has been written upon our hearts as part of the, of the new covenant. Right, the will of God is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where he tells the saints, just as you learn from us, now walk. And do so more and more, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. He tells us what His will is. That we be sanctified as we follow the pattern and the teaching and the example of the apostles. Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. What's the will of God? That for all of those who received Christ Jesus to, to have the mind of Christ and to, and to live as, as Christ lived. Earlier in chapter 1 of Colossians, uh, Paul says this, he prays that God would grant the, the saints all spiritual wisdom so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work. And so we see what else is the will of God? That you bear fruit in every good work. Right When Paul writes his letter to Titus, he says that. He says, we were saved to be a possession unto God that we would be a people zealous for good works. And so we see, brothers and sisters, that a, that a, a true, saving, lively faith is an obedient faith. Right? One that occupies itself with doing the will of God. Now, this might not always be easy. Right? And I think we all 
we all know that, don't we? We all have experience with obedience to the will of God not being so easy in our lives. Right? There is so much in this world that, that opposes us, isn't there? And yet what we need to understand or we need to acknowledge in those times are, are really three things I want us to think about. Right? When, when anything comes upon us to draw us away from the will of God, we ought to consider the power of God, we ought to consider the goodness of God, and we ought to consider the truth of God. And this is why, this is why I say that. Right? Acknowledging His power is to say that God is living inside of me. Right? He, has, he has taken up His dwelling in me so that He who is in me is, is stronger than He who is in the world. Right? So that as I live upon Christ, as I look to the, the power and strength of Christ, there's nothing that I cannot overcome by the power of God. As He tries to, to draw me away from doing His will. As I do the will of God, I am to rely on the power of God and it shall get me through. Right? That's what we ought to think about. Also, when the will of God is being found to be something difficult in our lives, we are to also think about uh, the goodness of God. Why do I say this? Well, we need to realize that uh, whatever difficulties, whatever situations we're in, that, that, that whatever God has, has placed us, that nothing that God does has evil ends to it. Right? Nothing that God does has evil ends. Everything He does has holy ends only. Right? Which means that whatever situation we are in, it is for our good. Right? So although it might be difficult to do the will of God in this difficult situation, we know that God has us here right now in this moment because it's best for us. Right? It is what's best for us. And then finally, not forgetting to acknowledge His truth though. Right? Knowing that His truth will never change. And so, in every situation, every circumstance, we can stand on the truth of God. Right? Boldly and with much confidence, knowing that we are being guided by it. Right? Living in it. And whether, whether others like it or not, or, or they want to make comments about it and have something to say about it or not. And so thinking about those things, the, the goodness of God, the power of God, the, the truth of God, it ought to be a, an encouragement to all of our hearts, shouldn't it be? It ought to be an encouragement. No matter what God has, has called you to do in life, that ought to be an encouragement to you. Right? When you were called, did you, did you work in an office building? When you were called, did you work in an office building? I say that because this, when you were called, it doesn't mean that you were meant to be an itinerant minister like Paul, now traveling the region preaching the gospel. Um, but if you were called while you were in that, working in that office, uh, God did transform you so that while you work in that office, right, you will reflect right, in obedient life, living according to the will of God, in your office life now. And that even when you find things difficult in your vocational calling, that you can continue to look to the, the power, right, the goodness and the truthfulness of God. Right? That's the same if you were, you were called while working in a restaurant industry or in a factory or a field or, or even in your home. Right? Our actions, our life in our vocations, our day-to-day life ought to evidence that Christ lives inside of us because Jesus is a, a transforming Savior. 
He is a, a powerful Savior. And so true saving faith produces a, a sanctified life because a sanctified life lives out of Christ. Right? It lives out of Christ. We, we fetch all of our strength that we need every single day of our life to, to do the will of God in Christ. Right? It's the Christ we run to and we fetch everything we need to do the will of God every day of our life. But we need to also understand, brothers and sisters, that we will fall short, won't we? We will fail to perfectly obey the, the will of God in our lives. There will be times in your places of employment that you fail to conduct yourself as someone who's been transformed by the power of a living God. Right? There will be times in which we, we say things that don't demonstrate someone who has been transformed by the power of the living God. But I also want us, though, to understand this, that when that occurs, we ought not to always question if the faith we have is really a saving faith. Right? We're not to always question when we fall short, am I uh, truly saved? Uh, I think many times people do this because their faith becomes subject-centered instead of object-centered. Right? Their faith becomes man-centered instead of uh, Christ-centered. And we can never fail to realize that it is not faith in our faith that saves us, but it's our faith in Christ that saves us. Right? It's faith in Him that saves. This is why B.B. Warfield says this, It is accordingly solely from its object that faith derives its value. Not the subject, the object. It is solely from the object that faith derives its value. The saving power of faith resides not in itself, but in the Almighty Savior on whom it rests. And so, he says, it is not strictly, strictly speaking, even faith in Jesus that saves you. Right? Hear that again. Strictly speaking, it is not faith in Jesus that saves you, but Christ that saves you through faith. And having weak faith at times, Showing that, that weakness through our lack of obedience at times does not negate the one in whom we have our faith in. But it doesn't negate the, the work of Christ. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, faith is simply an instrument that God has, has given to us to lay hold to Christ. Right? Faith is a, a conduit by which we grab hold of Jesus in, in all of His works. And so it's not, it's not trusting in your faith that saves you but it's trusting in Christ and in trusting in what He has done that saves. Right? Whether that's in good times or in bad, in those times when we are pleased with ourselves because we are obedient, and even in those times when we can be displeased with ourselves through our lack of obedience. Right? Knowing that ultimately the, the God who granted us the saving faith is the same God who Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, works within us. Right? To both will and work after the good pleasure of God. This is why the saints in the churches of Judea then can, can praise and glorify God. 
for what they've seen him doing in Paul. Look at verse 24 with me then. And they glorified God because of me. This leads us to our third and our final point, which is Paul lived to glorify God. Right? Paul lived to glorify God. Why are they glorifying Him? Look at verse 23. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith He once tried to destroy. So we see, brothers and sisters, that you cannot honor God in the manner that He deserves if you are not living an obedient life to God. You cannot honor your God as He deserves if you are not living an obedient life. And so if you ask, well, how can I glorify God? What is a practical way in which I can glorify God, not just here, but every day? Living obediently to God. That's how you do it. One of the ways in which you do it. It was the obedience to to God that Paul showed to everyone else all of the benefits that he received from Christ. And it caused the the churches of Judea to, to rejoice, didn't it? And to glorify God. This is why they glorified God, though, and not Paul. Because the saints in these churches recognized that the faith of Paul was a grace of God. And so they glorified God. And they recognized that Paul's life that he was now living was all of God. It was a work of God. It all flowed out of the grace of God. And so God receives all the glory for it. Brothers and sisters, Paul would still be persecuting the church during this time that he is writing if not for the grace of God. Right? That ought to teach us, though, something in the response that we see of the churches of Judea as they glorify God because of what they see Paul doing. And it ought to teach us this, that whenever we see in others the gifts and graces of God, it ought to stir within us a desire to go to Him in prayer and to offer thanksgiving to God and to glorify God for what He has done in another. That's what the response of these churches ought to, ought to teach us. I think many times we can maybe get angry with God when we see gifts and graces in others. Maybe because we don't care for that person too much. Maybe we, we wouldn't use the, the gifts and graces in the manner that they use them. We would use them a different way. And so we, we are slack to glorify God in this way. But I want us to see that that when you are slack in doing that, right, you, what you are, are ultimately uh, doing is that you are, are cheating God out of the glory He deserves. Right? That's what you're doing. Right? When you refuse to, to glorify God for the, the, the good works you see in another, the graces you see in another, you cheat God out of His glory. Because He ought to be praised for it. But Paul was someone who would not cheat God out of His glory, would he? This is why in... In Philippians chapter 1, if you think back there, remember Paul's in prison as he's writing that letter. And Paul tells us in chapter 1 that there are other people who are preaching the gospel, but they're preaching it out of, out of rivalry and envy. And he also tells us that, that as they preach it, they're preaching it because they think that Paul is going to receive a harsher affliction in prison as well. Right? So they're, they're preaching it so that Paul may be put to death because of it. But what's Paul's response to that? Right in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. But right? I want us to see, he says, that it's not important about me. I'm not the important one here. 
What's important is, are what they are doing glorifying God? And if what they are doing glorifies God, if, if glorifying God causes me discomfort, then I am happy and glad to be discomforted. But that's what Paul says. He's unwilling to cheat God out of His own glory. And brothers and sisters, that ought to be all of our mindsets, shouldn't it be? Right? We ought to desire to glorify God in our own lives, but we also ought to desire to see God glorified in all things. And whether that's to our detriment or our benefit. Right? That ought to be our same mindset as well. Now we said that one of the ways though in which we glorify God is, is through obedience to His Word. Here's another way that you can glorify God, and, and that is when sinners are saved. Right? God receives all the glory when sinners are saved and their lives are transformed. And so I say to, to you here today who have not yet trusted in Christ, if you want to glorify God, right? if you're sitting here today in the pew and you say, I want to glorify God, how can I glorify God? Believe in the name of His Son. That's how you could glorify God today. For those of you today who already believe, you know how you can continue to glorify God? Continue trusting and believing in His Son. Right? Continue trusting and believing as others see then your good works and they, they glorify God. Right? Recognizing that, that what has been done is a, is a true supernatural act of God and not you. Right? No man is able to do this of themselves. Right? Paul's transformation right, was not earthly, was it? It was otherworldly. Your transformation was not earthly, but it was supernatural. It was otherworldly. The gospel message that, that Paul proclaimed was not of this world. The gospel message we proclaim today is not of this world. And you know where it all can be traced back to? God. It all can be traced back to God. This is why He gets the glory. This is why Paul is spending so much time showing to you his prior life. Why he's spending so much time showing to you that his ministry was independent of all the other churches and all the other apostles so that God might receive all the glory. Right? That's what he's doing. Now we also see that when they heard what God did through them, that Paul has their approval though, doesn't he? Right? They, they might not have known Paul personally. They might never have met Paul. They might never have heard his conversion story with their own ears. But you know what they didn't know? They knew Christ themselves. They knew the Gospel. And when they heard what happened to Paul, when they heard about his transformation, when they heard about what it was he was declaring and what was happening to those who were, he was declaring it to, they recognized that was from God. Right? They recognized that was from God. And so although his uh, ministry was independent from the church in Jerusalem, they approved of Paul. They approved of him and his ministry, which is why they rejoiced in God. Right? They rejoiced and glorified God as the gospel was being preached, knowing that the, the gospel is the power to salvation for everyone who believes. But as we draw to a close this, this morning, I want us to see one other thing using uh, Paul's own conversion uh, for our example. And that is this. There are many people who think, because I lived a wicked and vile life, I will be of no use to God. Right. Why even come to Him? I am unworthy. Uh, when you are a believer, uh, how, can he, how can He do anything with me? Uh, I have lived such a, a shameful life prior to salvation. 
uh, I want us to see, brothers and sisters, that uh, God still will use you for His glory. Right? He still, you can still be used for His glory, and He will use you for His glory. In fact, I want us to see He's doing that this very day, isn't He? Right? He's using you for His glory as we, as we gather this morning to worship our triune God. Uh, he's using you for His glory in how you conduct yourselves in your homes and how you raise up your children. Uh, he's using you for His glory in, in how you interact with your neighbor. He's using you for His glory uh, in how you uh, work unto Him at your vocation. Right? All of those ways are ways in which God today has taken wretched, vile, filthy sinners like you and I and uses us right, for His glory now. But also what I want us to see is that when others see that in us, when others identify that, uh, let us not become boastful in us. Right? But let us rather be boastful in, in Him, right? be boastful in God, uh, recognizing that there is, is nothing, absolutely nothing that is praiseworthy in you and I that God Himself should not receive all of the praise for. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, we thank You for the, the godly examples of, of men like Paul uh, who demonstrate uh, the saving power of God in their lives. Uh, who also, though, uh, point us not to themselves, but point us rather upward to God uh, to look to Him for everything that we need. We are so thankful, uh, Father, for the, the transforming work of, of Christ. Uh, we acknowledge that apart from, from Christ, we can do no good thing. And that any good thing that is in us uh, comes from uh, Christ living inside of us. And so we thank You for that union with Christ. We pray, Father, that You would cause us to continue to uh, to receive everything that we need from Christ, to, to live out our faith in Him, to, to uh, walk in humble submission to His Word, and to, and to do everything in thought and word and deed to, to glorify You. Uh, for that is our, our aim. That is our end. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.